Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again, as we study another important topic about the end times. Today's message begins a short series on the life of Samson. As you will see, it will reflect on the dangers in the ecumenical movement that are designed to derail God's last message to the world, the three angels' message. But it also addresses unfaithfulness in the life of a believer as well as how God's mercy engages with a very compromised generation. But first, we will establish how Samson is a type of God's church in the last days, weak and defective, yet having the strength of the most powerful message ever given to human beings. Before we begin, let me say thank you for those who have prayed for Keep the Faith and for your support. Your partnership with Keep the Faith Ministry is helping thousands to think about their lives and get ready for the coming of the Lord. So, on behalf of all of them, we thank you for all that you have done to keep our work going. Please share the pink card in your packet with someone you know and invite them to join Keep the Faith. Get them to fill it out in your presence if you can and send it to us. That way they won't forget. And check out the latest offer from Last Generation Magazine in your packet. Take advantage of it. You won't find a better, uncompromising, present truth magazine on the market. The articles are really interesting and will strengthen your faith. Last Generation Magazine provides the principles of the Three Angels' messages. Each edition is packed with great material that you can use in practical ways. You can also purchase bulk quantity so that you can have some really good literature to give to others. Just call their offices. Every member of God's church is, by definition, a literature missionary. So don't miss your opportunity to get involved. Be certain to get your own subscription and one for someone else. Just a little secret, my wife is the editor. I know that what goes into those magazines is not chaff. It's the real wheat. I also have a very good opportunity for you as well. There's a new book available from Keep the Faith Ministry. It is a study on Revelation, and it is one of the best. The late Pastor Austin Cook is its author. Pastor Cook, an ordained minister and evangelist, was one of the faithful men who stood up against the support for Des Ford in the South Pacific, and he was persecuted for it big time. Many feel that his wife lost her life because of how he was treated by his brethren. His rather large and comprehensive verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the book of Revelation is now available, and you can get it from Keep the Faith for $30 USD or $35 AUD, or Australian dollars, plus postage, of course. Call our office in the U.S. at 540-672-3553, or in Australia, 03-5963-7000. My office manager, Barbara, has started reading Pastor Cook's book, and she just loves it. In this book, Pastor Cook fearlessly identifies the Antichrist and presents the issues in the great controversy in clear detail. 
He opens up God's full three angels' message in Revelation 14, 17, and 18, and explains how the key principles in Revelation fit together, along with the other passages of Revelation. If you want more clear insights on the Apocalypse of the Apostle John, this book is for you. And it is quite a large book, so $30 U.S. is a great price. So is $35 AUD. Today we're going to look at the family of Samson, perhaps from a perspective that you may not have thought much about before. We're going to draw out its lessons and parallels from the life of Christ and compare his beginnings with the end times. I hope and pray that through this series you will see the dangers of leaving the principles of God's truth and becoming infatuated with those who are determined to destroy your witness. So, to begin, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible that gives us insights into our times if our spiritual eyes are open. I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to us today to help us learn of these great principles in the life of Samson. As we study the life of this man whom God called to be his messenger and who began to deliver Israel, I pray that we will take heed to the obvious and the less obvious counsel of the Lord through this important story and be better prepared for the subtle temptations of the enemy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Israel was under pressure. They were under control of those who hated God. But God had allowed the Philistines to oppress and control them because of their sins and the evil that they did in the sight of the Lord. Have a look at verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. Do you think God had pleasure in bringing Israel under the control of these uncircumcised heathens? And the verse even tells us that this was not the first time that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. By now, Israel was under such great stress that God saw that it was time for a deliverer to rid Israel of these heathens. These were Canaanites that Israel had not destroyed when God had told them to utterly rid the land of them. These Canaanites had ancestors that went all the way back to the Tower of Babel. God had suffered long with the Philistines, in their rebellion and determination to follow false gods. These Philistines were Israel's next-door neighbors. The land of Dan bordered the region near Gaza which the Philistines occupied. And today, these people are now mostly Muslim, but they are still the enemies of Israel. If Israel, God's church, had not sinned against the Lord and gone after false gods, they would not be in this predicament now. The same is true today, my friends. God's people today need to heed the counsel of the Lord to let God be in control of his church and of its worship. But today we are not willing, generally, to stick to the pure system of worship that God has given us. So we are still in the land of the enemy under increasing oppression of our foes. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the LGBT movement is affecting everything from Christian businesses to accreditation of schools from freedom of speech to bathroom privacy, and it is hostile to conservative Christians. It is like the Philistines are invading God's church again, yet it will get worse if we don't get our lives ready for the coming of the Lord. If we follow after the practices of the emerging church, 
in its ever-changing iterations, if we continue to live for our own gratification, if we continue the current decline in morality within God's church, God will suffer us to be oppressed by the very ones that are aiming to destroy us. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So in other words, the history of the Old Testament was written for us in the last days. We are nearing the end of the world. Therefore, the story of Samson is especially relevant to us, not just because of the obvious moral principles embedded in the story, but also because of the symbolic parallels of the story. So let's take this story and understand it as it is meant for us. God does not live at our level. He understands things far more broadly than we do, and he embeds things in the history of his people that are important for us to understand and grasp. Israel was in apostasy. Not one area of ministry was following God's plan. In fact, they were involved in idolatry of their heathen neighbors, even though God had expressly forbidden them to do this. They must have thought it was okay to dabble with the ecumenical friendship of the heathen religions around them, and that it wasn't going to be so bad. After all, they falsely reasoned, perhaps they could win some of them to the truth by mingling with them. They made friends with them, and consequently they were led into blasphemy and spiritual adultery. So God, in his mercy, allowed Israel to be oppressed by the very ones who had influenced them to engage in heathen worship. The Philistines were the chief among their enemies, and even though they had only five cities and were really a relatively small nation, God made use of them as the staff of his hand. They were very oppressive and vexatious, and they controlled Israel for 40 years, longer than any of God's judgments up until that time. But even when it was early in their servitude, God was preparing for their deliverance. He was already about to bring a baby boy into the world who would eventually deliver Israel. Likewise, in the time of Christ, when the Romans oppressed God's church, it was because the Jews had a spiritual problem from which they needed deliverance. Christ came to deal with that spiritual problem. He came disguised as a humble servant from Nazareth, not as a majestic king. Not even his disciples really got it until after he returned to heaven. But Christ was the true deliverer, and as it turned out, the Romans destroyed the Jews, even as Christ's true followers escaped the destruction of Jerusalem. And today, also, because salvation is in Christ, and because Christ has given more light to this last generation than any previous generation, by rejecting it, we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy who brings in subtle false teachings, ecumenical practices, and other things to compromise us and make us more willing, like the people in Samson's day, to get involved in a form of modern idolatry. God's last church is the most suited by its message to engage in battle with the enemy. But instead, we are weak and divided, pursuing false doctrines and ecumenical practices that lead us further and further away from God's ideal. God will have to raise up a deliverer, May I suggest that God's chosen deliverer in these last days are those who have learned and understand the experience of the three angels' messages. These three angels represent a muscular message that will turn the world upside down when given under the Holy Spirit fire of the latter rain.
Manoah was of the tribe of Dan, which means a judge or judgment. Genesis 30 verse 6 tells us this of Bilhah's son. Bilhah was Rachel's maid. And Rachel said, God hath judged me, and hath also heard my voice, and hath given me a son. Therefore called she his name Dan. Dan lay next to Philistia. And how fitting that God would raise up someone of the tribe of Dan to judge the Philistines and deliver Israel, for judgment and deliverance go together. Now Joshua 13, verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren, and bare not. We never learn of Manoah's wife's name. But she was a godly woman, as was her husband. And when God surveyed the whole of Israel, he could see that this family, from an obscure tribe and an obscure place, was willing to do his bidding. My friends, the respect of heaven... For a family that observes the law of the Lord and does his bidding is enormous, and they bend every effort to bless that family with the presence of the holy angels and of the Holy Spirit, and they do all they can to help them remain faithful to God. Let us read verse 3. One day, as she was alone and perhaps even a little despondent about her condition, the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren, and bearest not but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. This answered the burden of her heart. She had longed for a son, but was unable to have one. But with this good news, suddenly there was hope. Who else, by the way, did the angel of the Lord appear to in Bible history? Yes, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the deliverer from our sins. It's interesting that we are told Manoah and his wife knew not that the one thus addressing them was Jesus Christ. They looked upon him as the Lord's messenger, but whether a prophet or an angel, they were at a loss to determine. That's Signs of the Times, September 15, 1881. He had shrouded his glory in humanity so as not to destroy them by the brightness and purity of his person. He appeared in the dress of a prophet or a man of God. In those days, a man of God wore rough clothing of animal skins. Can you imagine Jesus, the majesty of heaven, standing before this woman to give her the good news dressed like that? Little does she realize who she is seeing and listening to. But she discerns that there was something unusually beautiful about him. He has such a majestic, commanding appearance, a sparkling eye more beautiful than any she had seen, a shining face that was beaming with a quiet, settled peace, all of which made her think, he was a man of God. She was so awestruck that she didn't ask his name or what town in Israel he was from. Plus, his message was so satisfying to her that she did not think to ask more about him. In any case, she perceived that he was not an ordinary human, but godlier, more godlike than anyone she'd ever seen. And she thinks he looked like an angel. In fact, it scared her a bit. She described him to her husband, Manoah, by saying, And his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible, that's verse 6. But this was Christ himself. He came to Manoah's wife to announce the good news that she was to be the mother of Israel's deliverer. That she would become pregnant with the one who would judge the Philistines and give Israel back its independence.
Keep in mind, Christ was giving her and us a symbol of himself. The great deliverer of sin was to become the Messiah who was to save his people from their sins. If Samson was to be a type of Christ, a redeemer, which was the original intention, his birth would be foretold by an angel, as was the birth of Jesus. But note that the word of God also predicted the last powerful message that was to be given to the world. What Samson did for Israel, God's people will do on a worldwide scale, that is, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. See Revelation 14, verse 6. And Christ makes it clear that he knew her sorrow at being childless. Maybe she was struggling a little with regret and pain over this. Perhaps she had retired to a secluded place to meditate and pray, and maybe even cry a little. Maybe she was feeling it the most at that very time. Christ reminds her of her condition. Not that she's forgotten. It's foremost on her mind and the burden of her soul. She thinks that perhaps she had done something wrong and God had cursed her, or perhaps she was one of those unlucky women who were doomed to suffer reproach because of their barrenness. But Christ did not scold or find fault with her. He showed her that he knew her plight and was sympathetic. He had to win her confidence, else she would disbelieve him. Christ often brings comfort when we are most burdened with our troubles. It is one of his ways of binding us close to himself, of wrapping his arms around us and encouraging us with his love and his smile. In Bible prophecy, a woman represents a church. So this symbol represents a church without a message. There is no child. It is a barren church. But God is about to make that church that really wants to do his will very fruitful. You are barren, he said in so many words, but you will not always be as she had feared. And not very long from now, you will be with child. He even made the statement twice that she was going to conceive and bear a son. Christ placed emphasis on this because he wanted to assure her that she could be confident in the promise. Christ was telling her that the strongest man that ever lived on earth was a child of promise. Isaac was also born by virtue of a promise and faith in that promise. So was John the Baptist, and for that matter, Christ himself. All of them were children of promise. Samson's strong body was a type of Christ, who had the strongest moral character of any man that ever lived. Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, now appearing as a humble man of God, was going to give Manoah's wife the most important divine counsel concerning the way in which she was to raise Samson and prepare him to deliver Israel and give them peace from their oppressors. And he was going to manifest himself to Manoah as well and do wonderful things before them to confirm his message and his person. For Manoah would later say, that we have seen God, verse 22. Verse 4 and 5. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Let us think about the words of Christ to this dear woman. He declares that he would be a Nazarite from his mother's womb. The Nazarite was one who was separated to God. 
The Nazarite oath was generally taken by thinking adults or older children who knew what they were doing. It was normally a voluntary oath for a set period of time. The Nazarites typified Christ in their pure and holy living while under oath. But this woman was told that he would be a Nazarite from her womb until his death, which even more closely typified Christ. Christ did not sin from the time that he was born until the time that he died. Samson was to be a Nazarite of God's making, and the Nazarite life was imposed on this woman even before she conceived her son. Samson would be entrusted with that same consecration from his mother's womb from the moment of his conception. In other words, she was to set in motion, even before Samson was born, the principles of purity and singleness to God. That means that she must be pure and single in her own heart to God. Otherwise, she would not be able to give him the environment which would make it easiest for him to remain loyal to God himself. Even though women did not do the Nazarite vow normally, this woman was given the gift of that vow for herself as well as for Samson. Therefore, she was to deny herself and not eat any unclean thing. Her temperance was to give him a strong constitution. He was to be healthy in mind and body, particularly if he was to have great strength. Samson was to be an example of holiness and devotion. This was necessary for Israel's deliverer. And while other judges had corrected the apostasies of the church, Samson was to rise above them all in his devotion and consecration to God. He was to live a life similar to Christ. He was to be an example to all Israel of the strength they might obtain to overcome their foes, and in particular the one inveterate spiritual enemy that was always on their track, leading them to break God's law. Now think about this. Samson represents Christ, but he also represents the message that God has given to his people at the end of time. He was to be an example to us of how to live in the sight of God in our day. Let us think about the parallels. First, God predicted our message, the three angels' messages in the book of Revelation. Long before their time had come, just as he predicted the birth of Samson. Embedded in the first angel's message is the unmistakable calling to a holy life and an emphasis on a health message, just like Samson. Here's another parallel. Manoah's wife was given the message of pure living. Samson had it imposed on him before he was born. God's people in the last days, born as we are into the three angels' messages, have this clean living commanded upon us too, even before our birth. Today's generation of faithful souls are to leave off all unclean foods, in fact, all animal food and other harmful foods. We are to live pure lives by the power of Christ living in us, as the Nazarite did. We are to be devoted to God and earnestly seek His will and try to get others to join us in holy living. And today, God intends to use his last-generation church, as he intended to use Samson in type, to deliver many from the deceptions and point them to the Savior, who will not only forgive their sins, but who will give them power to defeat the enemy at every turn. His wife comes to him with great joy and tells him all that she has seen and heard. She tells him that she has seen someone that looks like an angel, 
who told her she was going to bear a son, and gave her certain instructions about the way to live. Manoah is astonished. He wants to be sure that his wife isn't having some sort of hallucination or some fanatical delusion. But she is sincere and doesn't have a history of these sorts of things anyway. He perceives this as important and is worried that if this is a message from God, he needs to understand it for himself. After all, a father is very important to the raising of the child, and if God was giving his wife this important message, he felt he needed to hear it too, as head of their home. Verse 8. Then Manoah entreated the Lord, and said, O my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come unto us again, and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. So again, the angel appears to the woman and repeats his message after she went and got her husband. Verses 9 through 14. And God hearkened unto the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man hath appeared unto me that came unto me the other day. And Manoah arose and went after his wife, and came to the man, and said unto him, Art thou the man that spakest unto the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child, and how shall we do unto him? And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah earnestly prayed for the messenger to come to them again. He believed his wife's story and accepted its fact. Not even Zechariah the priest, waiting upon the altar of the Lord, and to whom the angel of the Lord appeared, had as much faith as this humble Danite. He has a sense of responsibility for the child that is to come to them. He wants to understand the message for himself. Manoah fears that the great and exuberant joy of his wife at the good news of her forthcoming conception would have caused her to forget something that the angel told her. So he earnestly begged the Lord to send the messenger again so that he can hear it with his own ears. Manoah wanted to get to know the man of God for himself. And shouldn't we all? After all, this was Christ himself, the bridge between God and man the one altogether lovely, and the one in whom our hope of eternal life is centered. Should we not want to become acquainted with him and get to know him better? Those who have heard from heaven cannot but wish to hear more, again and again. Manoah also wanted to be hospitable to his heavenly guest. He wants to feed him so as to become a friend. Manoah does not go himself, nor send a servant around to the neighboring towns to find this man of God. He seeks him on his knees. He prays that God will send him again, and in seeking he finds. And shouldn't we do the same? If you want God's messengers to come to you, to bring you instruction, you have to seek him on your knees. He will send you the messages you need, specifically suited to your life. Verse 9 says, And God hearkened unto the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. So notice that the woman sat in the field as if she was expecting the angel to come again. She likely went to the same place where she had seen him before. 
It was as if she sat in eager expectation that her husband's prayer would be answered. Friends, God will not fail to guide those by his counsel who sincerely desire to know their duty and apply it to themselves. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. That's Psalm 25, verse 8 and 9. The man of God was very willing that the husband should be called. And like the woman at the well whom Jesus said, Go call thy husband, John 4, 16, this woman may also have been bidden to call her husband, while the angel of the Lord, who would have had plenty of other things to do, waited patiently for his human friends to return. For her part, the woman does not desire him to go with her to meet her husband, but rather that she should fetch her husband and bring him to their place of meeting. Her husband was probably in his place of business, with others all around him. Meeting the angel there would be fraught with distractions and perhaps even create some disturbance or a reaction. She knew that her husband earnestly wanted to meet this messenger and learn more, and this could not be done in his place of business. The meeting had to take place in a quiet, secret place. My friends, those who want to meet with God must go where he is pleased to manifest himself to them, in the quiet. You will not find God if you don't seek him where he is. God is pleased to meet with us in his word. That angel that met with Manoah and his wife was the word disguised in human flesh. If we expect to find God, we must seek him earnestly in the quiet. Manoah does not complain that the messenger did not come directly to him this second time. He's so eager for a private meeting with him that he doesn't even think of this as a slight or a disrespect. And it wasn't. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman who had come back to the place and had demonstrated her faith and devotion while her husband continued his practical work. Manoah's words to the angel, Now let thy words come to pass, are similar words to those of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the angel told her of her conception. She said, Be it according to thy word. These are statements of faith, my friends. Lord, I lay hold on what thou hast said, and depend on it. Let it come to pass. We must exercise faith like that. God gives us a promise, and we are to expect that it will be fulfilled, and we are to act as if it is fulfilled. Now let thy words come to pass. We cannot fulfill them. Only you can do that, O Lord. But we will cooperate with heaven for their accomplishment. Remember, God's words are powerful and will bring about the result that they set out to achieve. If we accept God's word as instruction for us, plain and simple, we will increase in faith as we see God's promises fulfilled in our lives. Whenever God bestows some great mercy on us, our great interest is to be how to use it well. For mercies are only mercies when they are rightly managed. God has given us bodies, material possessions, influence, and all good things. We have to answer to the one who gave them for how they are managed in harmony with the intent of the giver. So those whom God has given children should earnestly seek to know how to care for them and what to do unto them to drive out the foolishness that is in their hearts and mold and shape them, train them and form their mind and behavior in the way that they should go.
while most people, even so-called Christian people, hardly give it a second thought, what they set before their children to watch or to eat, as the last generation, we should beg for divine assistance in everything pertaining to them. Lord, teach us how we may order our children, that they may be like the Nazarites, living sacrifices unto thee. We in this last generation, just before Jesus comes in the clouds of glory, are to be careful that we take heed, not only in eating and drinking, but in everything and anything, however innocent, that does not deliberately lead us to holiness. When she was with child with a Nazarite, the woman was not to eat any unclean thing. Likewise, those in whom Christ is formed must carefully cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, and do nothing that would make it difficult to be a new man. Now let us read verses 15 and 16. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee until we shall have made ready a kid for thee. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. If the angel of the Lord had revealed himself to Manoah at first, do you think Manoah would have spoken to him as he did? It was in mercy to Manoah that the Lord concealed himself as a man. Likewise, Christ was in the world, and the world knew him not. We human beings cannot bear the sight of the divine glory unveiled. So God chooses to speak to us through men like ourselves, prophets, apostles, ministers. And even when he spoke by his angels and by his Son, they appeared in the likeness of men. Notice also that Manoah desired to show some token of respect and gratitude to his venerable stranger who brought them these glad tidings and begged him to take some refreshment with him. But the angel did not accept his offer of food, similar to the way he refused Gideon's offer, and invited him to turn it into a sacrifice unto the Lord. Those that welcome the message of the Lord will be kind to the messengers that bring it. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. We are to look after the messengers to make sure their needs are met. But angels do not need meat and drink. They do the will of God and glorify him and that is their meat and drink, just as was Christ's. In John 4.34, he said to his disciples when they returned from Sychar and wondered what he had eaten, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, he said, and to finish his work. While we cannot live without food and drink, yet when we drink and we eat to the glory of God, even our common meals are turned into sacrifices to the Lord, just as Manoah's gift was. And in giving the first angel's message of Revelation 14, we are to make sure that all we do, including what we eat, gives glory to God. Listen to it from verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and sea and fountains of waters. The scripture also says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that as Christians committed to Christ, we are to live by every principle of heaven in order to give glory to God. But Paul especially mentions eating and drinking. So the health message that was given to Samson's mother and father is also given to the last generation. Judges 13, 17, and 18 says, And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name? That when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Manoah wanted to know this stranger's name and what tribe he was from. He wanted to visit him and get better acquainted. Well, that's a good thing, actually. But he wanted to do him honor, meaning that when the child was born and the angel's words had come to pass, he could name his child after him or send him a present and honor him as a true prophet. But the angel denied his curiosity. This was unnecessary, though Manoah's heart was honest. Remember, he did not know yet that this was the angel of the Lord, or Christ himself especially. He was still thinking in human terms. God does not satisfy mere curiosity. He does, however, give us instructions on how to live, raise our families, and walk with Jehovah. The scriptures are full of direction and instruction for us so that we may know our duty. That's all we need. They were never designed to answer all the inquiries of a speculative and skeptical mind. So why did God tell Moses his name, but not Manoah? Here it is from Exodus 3.13 and 14. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. In this instance, there was a specific need for Moses to know God's name, or Christ's name more precisely. He is the I am, and the people need to understand that the great I am was their leader, not Moses. The great I am is the one who directs the work, and today we can be assured that we too are being directed by the great I am if we do his will and order our lives after scripture. But Manoah did not need to know the angel's name. That would have been too overwhelming for Manoah. He would have feared for his life because it was too wonderful for him. One of Christ's many names is wonderful. Christ was sending him on a wonderful mission. He was to do a special work in raising his son. He needed to understand that work, not the name of the angel who instructed him. He just needed to have confidence that this was a message from God. The angel's name was a secret to Manoah. The secret things belong to our God, not to human flesh. There are many things that we are in the dark about, but we are not in the dark concerning our duty. So if we have faith in and live by the promises of God, he will fulfill them and we will eventually know even as we are known. To be willingly ignorant of the things God has revealed is sin. But to be ignorant of the things that he has not revealed is wisdom. So many people today try to speculate about things that are mysterious and not revealed. They elevate their speculative ideas above the things that are clearly and plainly revealed, and which are especially important for us to know in these last days. 
These things distract God's people away from the message that God has revealed to us about our duty to live righteously in His sight and to raise our children according to His instructions and to get our lives right with God. There are many winds of doctrine floating around today, and they're just designed to distract us from the message that it is our duty to proclaim. Let me read from Maranatha, page 147. The commandment of God that has been almost universally made void is the testing truth for this time. The time is coming when all those who worship God will be distinguished by this sign. They will be known as the servants of God by this mark of their allegiance to heaven. But all man-made tests will divert the mind from the great and important doctrines that constitute present truth. Think about it, my friends. There are many winds of doctrine today floating around among God's people. Some teach that we are to abandon the principles of the three angels' messages. Others teach that we are to abandon our position on the Godhead, or the principles of the sanctuary, or our position on the Jewish feast, etc. But these are distractions from the central theme that we are to uphold. Verses 19 and 20. So Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously, and Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came to pass, when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. If the angels have entertainment, my friends, it would be the praises and worship of God's people. They love it. So does Christ. So the angel assisted Manoah in his sacrifice of worship on the rock. He did wondrously, the Bible says. In other words, he lit the fire of the sacrifice. The altar was a rock. There was no fire in the rock, so the angel manufactured heavenly fire to burn the offering and then ascended up to heaven in the flame. Today we must do the same as Manoah. That rock represents Christ. We are to bring our hearts to God and offer them on the rock to be broken and as a living sacrifice live unto God. Submit our hearts to the operation of the Spirit, and thereby give the angels joyful entertainment in the process. Lord, here is my heart. Do with it as you please. It is yours. That is the kind of prayer we are to pray. And when he ascended up to heaven in the fire, that's when Manoah and his wife realized that he was not a mere man, but heaven's messenger sent directly with a message for them. Think about it, my friends. When God accepted their offering, he signified it by lighting the fire, and it suggests to what we owe the acceptance of our offerings. The mediation of the angel of the covenant, Jesus Christ himself. He puts much incense on the altar, which ascends in the spiritual flame that is implanted in our hearts. And as the prayers of the saints mingle with the incense, it is a sweet-smelling savor unto God and all the hosts of angels in the courts above. Without Christ, our prayers and incense is but offensive smoke, but in Christ they are acceptable in his sight, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, Psalm 104, verse 4, and whose throne is enveloped in flame. It is interesting that Christ ascended in the fire he kindled, a symbol of the sacrifice of himself for us. For by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. Hebrews 9, verse 12. As the angel ascended to heaven, the hearts of those dear people ascended with him. 
for the verses twice say that they looked on. They were eyewitnesses of the things of Christ, which they had seen and heard. They saw his majesty veiled in human flesh, a symbol of his sojourn on earth yet to come, and his sacrifice for the redemption of man there on the rock, which fittingly represents Christ too. God always wraps indications of his love and acceptance of his saints in symbols of sacrifice for the redemption of man. And if we open our spiritual eyes, aided by the Holy Spirit, we shall see them. The Bible then says that they fell on their faces to the ground. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord, verse 20 and 21. Obviously, Manoah realized that this was not a human body that they had seen, for it was an angel. Can you imagine the astonishment of Manoah and his wife when they realized that he was an angel? The Bible says that the angel did not appear to them anymore. They were to go their way and do what the angel had told them to do and not expect to hear more. Manoah now fears for his life. Verse 22. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die, because we have seen God. Notice that Manoah actually realizes this isn't even an ordinary angel, but an angel of the covenant. Perhaps all the symbolism suddenly makes sense to Manoah. It was God himself. Christ the Redeemer to come. Also notice now that the angel has gone. Manoah has time for serious reflection. And while they're watching the angel, they were silent, as we all should be when we see a vision of the Almighty in Scripture. But now he speaks, and he speaks of fear. Verse 23. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would, as at this time, have told us such things as these. Sensible woman, logical, discerning, and calming. She encourages and strengthens his faith. Isn't that what a helpmeet is for? To help us? Not only with our daily chores and ministry, but to help us by strengthening our faith. To the Jew, it was understood that if you saw God, you would die. This preconceived and inaccurate understanding overtook him and overwhelmed him. Here, the weaker vessel had stronger faith. Perhaps that is why Christ chose to meet with her the second time and for her to call her husband. Two are better than one. If one fall into dejection or despondency, the other can raise him up. Her arguments were the clearest and best argument against Manoah's fears. We have received tokens of his favor, she said. Why should we fear now? He would not have shown us these strange sights, now at a time when there is little or no open vision. Remember, this was the time before Samuel the prophet, and up to his early years, the scripture says there was no open vision. See 1 Samuel 3 verse 1. Nor would he have told us we are going to have a son who is going to be a Nazarite and a deliverer of Israel. He would not have told us these things if he was going to kill us. We don't need to fear. We need to follow. The same is true for us. We are not to fear when God gives us special tokens of his favor. We are to follow him. God does not design the death of repentant sinners because he has accepted the sacrifice that Christ offered up for them. Let those who have communion with God in the word and prayer, to whom he has graciously manifested himself, and who have had reason to think God has accepted them, 
take courage in every cloudy and dark day. Let them say, God would not have done what he has done for my soul if he had designed to forsake me and leave me to perish at last, for his work is perfect. Nor will he mock his people with his favors. Learn the lesson of Manoah's wife. If God had designed me to perish under his wrath, he would not have given me such distinguishing tokens of his favor. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 O woman, great is thy faith. Now let us see if we can summarize the parallels between the life of Samson and God's last day church. As his birth was foretold, so was the birth of the last church foretold in many places in the Bible, but especially in Revelation 12. The dragon was wroth with the woman, God's church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, the last remnant of faithful followers on earth, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Samson was to be the deliverer of Israel. In this he was a type of Christ, but he is also a type of those living in our day who proclaim God's full message of deliverance from sin in this wicked and evil generation, and it will be a powerful message. Also, Samson was to deliver Israel through his physical strength. God's last generation of faithful souls are to deliver those who want to be God's true people through spiritual strength in giving the three angels messages. When rightly understood in practice, the three angels' messages are very strong to deliver from sin and false worship. Samson's family was given instructions to raise Samson from the womb as a Nazarite set apart or separated to God for a special work. This pure Nazarite lifestyle included special instructions on health, especially dietary instructions. Samson was to live a pure life under the Lord and begin to deliver Israel. Likewise, the last generation of believers are to live pure and holy lives, separating themselves from the world. They too have a health message that they are to live by. They too have been commissioned by God to do a special work just before Jesus comes and to give a special message of deliverance, deliverance from all sin. They are to proclaim the last warning message to a fallen world to get ready for the coming of Jesus. The times will require a muscular experience with Christ. Samson was ordained to judge in Israel. The Bible tells us that he judged Israel 20 years. God's people in the last days are living in a time of judgment, in particular the investigative judgment. They are to proclaim the judgment hour message, which no other church in history has ever been given to do. They are to teach about Christ's work of judgment in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. God's people in the last days will also begin to deliver the true Israel of God from bondage to sin, just as Samson began to deliver Israel from their Philistine enemies. By reaching souls in collaboration with heavenly beings, we are to help them see that by cooperating with God, they can be delivered from the power of sin and to live pure lives according to the Scripture. May God help us to see this and his will more deeply and more broadly. God bless you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us the links between the scriptures and our times. Please help us understand the full meaning of what we have studied today. Show us by your Holy Spirit that we have a special work to do, 
May we learn how to live holy lives unto God, who is our friend and wants to save us. May we also help others to find their way to the Lord and to the great testing truths for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of kings. Be thou thyself the answer to all my questionings. Live out thy life within me, in all things have The temple has been yielded and purified of sin. Let thy Shekinah glory now shine forth from within. And all the earth keeps silence, the body henceforth be. Thy silent, gentle servant Moved only as by Thee Its members every moment Held subject to
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. If you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred your soul and blessed you, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith. The song you've just heard is Live Out Thy Life Within Me, sung by Christian Berdahl. The song is recorded on a CD with other lovely hymns called Consecration. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Consecration CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Church of England and cashless contributions. Churchgoers will no longer have to fumble in their pockets and purses for loose change or notes as the Church of England introduces contactless payment terminals in more than 16,000 churches, cathedrals, and other religious sites. The aim is to make donations easier and faster. Congregations will also be able to donate via text message. The Church of England takes about £580 pounds a year in donations, although most are from standing orders and fees rather than cash given in church. It began looking at cashless payments due to the declining numbers of people carrying cash. Its portable card readers can take payments from contactless bank cards, chip and pin, Apple Pay, and Google Pay. A merchant, expected to be a church volunteer, is needed to input transactions, most likely at the start or end of a service or event. People booking churches and halls for events will also have the option of electronic payments. The technology firms SumUp and iZettle will provide the services. John Preston, the Church of England's National Stewardship Officer, said, There is a clear need for our parishes to introduce card and contactless facilities, and we are excited to make this available. How we pay for things is changing fast, especially for younger churchgoers who no longer carry cash, and we want all generations to be able to make the most of their place of worship. Allison Davy, the secretary at St. George's Church Hub in Stamford, Lincolnshire, said, Our parishioners can occasionally find themselves strapped for physical cash, so it's fantastic to be able to offer an alternative which is quick and convenient. We hope this is a step forward for St. George's and many other churches like it in staying ahead in the modern era. Margaret Cave, the vicar of Christ Church in East Dulwich, South London, said she would like a totally cash-free church. It's nice just to feel part of the 21st century. When a young couple come in to discuss their marriage bans, which cost 43 pounds, I no longer have to send them over the road to a cash point, she said. Also, if people are giving money by card, there's no question that any of it is going to go missing. The Catholic Church is also moving to contactless collections to make donations easier in an increasingly cashless society. Several parishes in the Diocese of Westminster allow parishioners to donate via text message. The churches are now assisting the movement toward cashless. 
Cashless payments give banks and governments enormous power. One day they will use this power to prevent those who keep God's commandments from buying and selling. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelation 13:17. Next, Australian government and complementary medicine. Sometimes governments actually do something good. The Australian federal government has ignored the Australian Greens and anti-complementary medicine activists like Dr. Ken Harvey from Friends of Science and Medicine, a skeptic group, and passed a reform package that protects traditional medicine. The Therapeutic Goods Amendment Bill, which passed Parliament on February 15, supports positive claims for complementary medicines based on traditional evidence and abolishes the current complaint system, a move which will likely remove a mechanism of influence for the anti-CM or the anti-complementary medicine lobby. The Greens leader and general practitioner, Dr. Richard Di Natale, a senator, was aligned with skeptics whose platform is there is no alternative to medicine. A Senate submission says the Australian Greens concur with the concerns of stakeholders, including Friends of Science and Medicine, FOSM. One of Di Natale's concerns was that people were being misled by traditional claims about the effectiveness of complementary medicine. He and the skeptics wanted labels on complementary and traditional medicines to state this traditional indication is not in accordance with modern medical knowledge and there is no scientific evidence that this product is effective. Traditional medicine can include all manner of New Age, Chinese, and other forms of alternative therapies and potions than the natural remedies that God has ordained. It can, however, be easily seen that the attempt to marginalize them would have affected those who practiced valid forms of natural healing. The bill protects informed choice. It allows complementary medicines to continue to make traditional use claims, i.e., what a particular complementary medicine has been traditionally used for. For consumers, it means they're able to continue making informed choices because complementary medicines will continue to carry claims such as traditionally used to relieve muscle aches and pain. Skeptics had argued against the use of traditional claims, saying it was an endorsement of pseudoscience. Skeptics wanted the government to introduce mandatory disclaimers that complementary medicine products were based on alternative health theories that have been discounted by modern medical science. As of June 30, 2018, the current Complaints Resolution Panel, the CRP, which has included members of Friends of Science and Medicine and their supporters, will be shut down. This would reduce the power and influence of skeptic groups. Australia's medicine's watchdog, Therapeutic Goods Administration, or the TGA, will be responsible for a new complaint system as of July 1, 2018. It remains to be seen how they will manage these issues, but for now, the law upholding complementary or traditional medicine removes the threat to those who practice natural remedies as God has ordained them. As part of the bill, advertisements for complementary medicines will no longer need pre-approval with tougher penalties being used as a deterrent. In a desperate bid to try and stop the bill, high-profile skeptics such as Dr. Ken Harvey and highly influential decision-makers launched a scaremongering campaign in the media claiming that the change would put public safety at risk. Natural remedies are a staple among those who run health retreats and wellness centers, in Australia, 
And while many of the methods of healing that are in practice today by many practitioners are not part of God's plan for natural healing, anything that affects them will also affect those who do practice the true science of healing. Our institutions are established that the sick may be treated by hygienic methods, discarding almost entirely the use of drugs. There is a terrible account to be rendered to God by men who have so little regard for human life as to treat the body so ruthlessly in dealing out their drugs. We are not excusable if through ignorance we destroy God's building by taking into our stomachs poisonous drugs under a variety of names we do not understand. It is our duty to refuse all such prescriptions. That's Temperance, page 88. Next, Europe's youth abandoning Christianity. A new report, Europe's Young Adults and Religion, reveals that European youth ages 16 to 29 have abandoned the Christianity of their ancestors, particularly Catholicism and other churches, in large numbers. And now many young people in some countries, more than 50%, do not identify with any religion at all. In addition, large majorities of young Europeans say they never pray. The report was prepared by researchers at St. Mary's University Twickenham in London and the Institut Catholique de Paris. The report's author is Professor Stephen Boulevant of St. Mary's University, where he directs the Benedict XVI Center for Religion and Society. Some of the major findings from the study, which covered 22 European countries, include the following. The proportion of youth, 16 to 29, that they said do not identify with a religion was 91% in the Czech Republic. Estonia was 80%, has no affiliation with religion. Sweden, 75%. France, 64%. Spain, 55%. Germany, 45%. And Austria, 37%. In Poland, only 17% of youth said they had no religion. 25% of Lithuanian youth said the same. In Israel, only 1% said they had no religion. 70% of Czech youth and 60% of Spanish, Dutch, British, and Belgian young people said they never attend religious services. 80% of Czech youth and 70% of Swedish, Danish, Estonian, Dutch, French, and Norwegian youth said they never pray. As for the proportion of young people who identify as Catholic in what was once known as Christendom, it is less than 50% in most of the countries surveyed. For instance, several countries had high proportions. In Poland, 82% identify as Catholic. Lithuania, 71%. Slovenia, 55%. Ireland, 54%. And Portugal, 53%. However, in all the other countries surveyed, the proportion of Catholic young people was often far less than 50%. In Spain, it was 37% of youth who identified as Catholic. In Switzerland, 24%. France, 23%. United Kingdom, 10%. Norway, 2%. Sweden, 1%. And Denmark, only 1%. As for weekly mass attendance, only 2% of Belgian youth said they go every week. In Hungary, 3%, Austria, 3%, Lithuania, 5%, Germany, 6%. However, in Poland, 47% of the young people said they go to Mass every Sunday. In Portugal, 27%, Czech Republic, 24%, and Ireland, 24%. The report further found that only 26% of French young adults and 21% of British ones identify as Christians. 
Only 7% of young adults in the UK identify as Anglicans, compared to 6% as Muslims. In France, 2% identify as Protestants, 10% as Muslims. And commenting on the report, Professor Bullivan said, Christianity as a default, as a norm, is gone, and probably gone for good, or at least for the next 100 years. In 20 to 30 years, mainstream churches will be smaller, he said, but the few people left will be highly committed. Bill Donahue, president of the Catholic League, said that Pope Benedict saw all of this coming. He saw the effects of multiculturalism as clearly as anyone, showing how a contempt for moral truths that adhere to Judeo-Christian ethos has led to a particular Western self-hatred that is nothing short of pathological, said Donahue. The de-Christianization of the West has yielded such fruit as record-high levels of abortion, out-of-wedlock births, homosexuality, divorce, sexually transmitted diseases, pornography, prostitution, drug abuse, depression, and suicide, he said. This is the natural outcome of a civilization that has allowed moral relativism to triumph over Christianity, just as Pope Benedict XVI said it would. Roman Catholicism, which historically controlled Europe and discouraged reading the Bible, has failed to remain relevant to young people. Yet the Bible is the most relevant book on the planet. Leaders and members have not lived godly lives, generally speaking. Consequently, in these last days, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. Matthew 24, verse 12. To abandon Catholicism would be appropriate, but to throw true Christianity away is tragic. The only message that is really relevant in these end times is the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6-12, and the call to abandon false religion of Revelation 18, verses 1-4. Come out of her, my people, Revelation 18, verse 4. Next, scientists trying to link Christian fundamentalism with brain damage. Scientists from Northwestern University published a study in the journal Neuropsychologia, attempting to establish a link between religious fundamentalism and brain impairment. The findings suggest that religious fundamentalists have less cognitive flexibility. In addition, the study states that the damage to particular areas of the prefrontal cortex indirectly promotes religious fundamentalism. In other words, science is now attempting to say that those who believe the Bible have brain damage. The prefrontal cortex is a region of the brain which is implicated in planning complex cognitive behavior, personality expression, decision-making, and moderating social behavior. The most well-known function of this region is considered to be the executive function, that is, the ability to differentiate among conflicting thoughts, determine good and bad, better and best, same and different, future consequences of current activities, working toward a defined goal, prediction of outcomes, expectation based on actions, and social control, that is, the ability to suppress urges that, if not suppressed, could lead to socially unacceptable outcomes. The study was led by Jordan Grafman of Northwestern University and utilized data from Vietnam War veterans. The veterans were chosen because a large number of them had damage to brain areas suspected of playing a critical role in functions related to religious fundamentalism. CT scans were taken from both a group of healthy veterans and the aforementioned group. In addition, the majority of those tested identified as Christian. 
The scientists who conducted the study believe that adherence to religious fundamentalism is the result of some form of brain damage, whether it be by brain trauma, a psychological disorder, a drug or alcohol addiction, or simply a particular genetic profile. Also, the scientists believe that in the near future, through various kinds of mental and cognitive exercises, the adherence to religious fundamentalism can be eradicated. Science has yet to disprove the possibility of God, and as a result have resorted to calling those who adhere to a belief system as damaged. According to the study, religious fundamentalism refers to an ideology that emphasizes traditional religious texts and discourages progressive thinking about religion and social issues. Christian fundamentalism is the belief in biblical inerrancy and is usually described as holding to the literal interpretation of the Bible. Fundamentalists usually believe in a core of Christian beliefs that include the historical accuracy of the Bible and all its events, as well as the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, these scientists are targeting any and all Christians, but especially those who believe in the second coming of Jesus. The study suggests that the 2.3 billion Christians on the planet have some form of brain damage. But the study only evaluated veterans who already had some form of brain injury or war trauma and did not include a wide variety of fundamental Christians in the study. It is not appropriate to make a generalization about all fundamental Christians by injured veterans. Astonishingly, rather than believe in a creator, science would have us believe that humanity originated from either comet dust, Martians, or have evolved from absolutely nothing. Science has no evidence that God doesn't exist. Rather, evolutionists utilize indoctrination, militant ideology, and demoralizing methodology to obliterate any remaining decency. Scientists have assumed that the moral obligation not to kill or steal are not rooted in the Bible. Those Bible principles have translated into laws which are carried out across the world today. The moral relativism of scientists is leading to the same conclusions as existed in the French Revolution. At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, and the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Such are the influences to be met by the youth of today. To stand amid such upheavals, they are now to lay the foundations of character. Education, page 228. Next. London has overtaken New York City in murder rate rise. London's murder rate has overtaken New York City for the first time ever, and for the second month in a row. The month of February was the first month in which the UK capital had more murders than the Big Apple, with 15 dead, nine of which were 30 or under. London also suffered 22 fatal stabbings and shootings in March, compared to 21 in New York. Both cities have around 8.5 million people. New York City's murder rate has decreased by around 87% since the 1990s. And meanwhile, London's murder rate has grown by nearly 40% in just three years. And this does not include deaths caused by terrorist attacks. 
Approximately 30 of the deaths in London in 2018 have been by knife. Fatal stabbings in England and Wales are now at their highest level since 2011, rising by 12% in the year ending December 2017. Jacob Whittingham, charity head of programs for Fight for Peace, said, What's scary about London is the randomness of the crime. With young people in London, you have no idea if and when you may be a victim of violent crime. That's why they feel the need to carry weapons. Met Commissioner Chrisita Dick, Britain's most senior police officer, said websites and mobile phone applications such as YouTube, Snapchat, and Instagram were partly to blame for the bloodshed. New York's decrease is credited to its zero-tolerance policing model, which has driven down the homicide rate from around 2,000 deaths in 1990 to 230 last year. London, however, is experiencing a spike in violent crime. According to The Telegraph, a person is nearly six times more likely to be burgled in London than in New York City, and 1.5 times as likely to fall victim to a robbery. London also has nearly three times the number of reported rapes, though reporting methodology may account for the vastly higher number in London. The world over, cities are becoming hotbeds of vice. On every hand are the sights and sounds of evil. Everywhere are enticements to sensuality and dissipation. The tide of corruption and crime is continually swelling. Every day brings the record of violence, robberies, murders, suicides, and crimes unnameable. That's Country Living, page 5. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now, you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.